Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Share a couple stories here at the beginning. Now, these stories are not true, but I think they are true to life. At a dinner party, Tim overhears a fellow church member, Mary, discussing a political issue, and he vehemently disagrees with her perspective. They get into a discussion. The discussion turns into an argument. Things get heated. They part amiably. But later that night, as Tim is at home thinking about this argument that he's had with Mary, he starts thinking about other things he could have said. And he hops on Facebook. And he begins to put a post together, a rant. And and, and he talks about how ignorant people are when it comes to this issue. Mary is on Facebook too. She reads the post that Tim has put up. She gets offended. They used to be friends. But now there's a rift. Another story, not necessarily true in every detail, but but true to life. Pastor Sam insists on excellence at every Sunday morning service. In his church, they've invested a lot of money in media outreach. People are watching the services on their live stream. But an intern on this particular Sunday makes a critical mistake. The live stream crashes for about 15 minutes. Pastor Sam hears about this after church. He's incensed. He's starting to hear comments from people complaining. The numbers of those who were viewing the website went down. He's incensed. He fires the intern on the spot. Later that week, he meets with other pastors. And he tells this story as a way to illustrate how the church ought to pursue excellence in order to give glory to God. I wonder if the Apostle Paul could speak to Tim or Pastor Sam, what would he say? I think he would say, have you forgotten the humility of your Savior? As you relate to other people in the body of Christ, do you have the mind of Christ? This is what he writes in our epistle reading from Philippians 2. Have this mind, this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the church at Philippi, compared to some of the other churches that Paul wrote to, like the Corinthian church, was a relatively healthy church. But there was a festering sore in that church that threatened to infect the entire body. 
And it was, and Paul mentions this before he writes what we read in our passage in the bulletin. Before he gets to this, he writes about it and he says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. So there was this mindset of rivalry and pride leading to division, threatening to lead to division in the church at Philippi. And in order to address this, Paul recalls the story of Jesus' humiliation. And so I want to focus on this, the, the story of Christ's humiliation here. I'm going to focus on what Paul says really just in verses 6 through 8. Many scholars believe that what Paul is quoting here is a hymn of the early church. A hymn that they sang, that they would have been familiar with. So it's as if Paul is saying, you remember the song that we sing that tells us the story of Christ's humility? First, Paul reminds us of the greatness of Christ before he humbled himself. The greatness of Christ before he entered into a state of humility. He says in verse 6, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God. Now, that word form, it's difficult, I think, to capture with just one English word. The Greek word here has this sense of nature behind it. Um, the idea is that the nature of a thing expresses itself in its proper form. The nature of a thing will express itself in its proper form. So John Chrysostom, the great uh, preacher in the early church, Bishop of Constantinople in the 4th century, he, in his sermon on this text, he uses a nice analogy to get to this, this point. He says... Um, no man has the form of an angel. It's not proper to the nature of a man to have the form of an angel. And, and no dog has the form of a man. It's not proper to the nature of a dog to have the form of a man. So, so this word form ha has the idea of, of nature. So what Paul is saying is Christ in his pre-incarnate state was in the form of God. Because he was God. Very God of very God, as we say in the creed. He was fully God in terms of his nature. John, Gospel John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Word the eternal word of God, the Logos, was with God. Christ was with God in his pre-incarnate state. He existed in eternity with God, the Father. A place of glory, a place of majesty, a place of perfect beauty and love. A place where, according to the scriptures, the angels gathered around the throne of God day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's where Jesus was. That's where the eternal Son of God was in that place 
of praise and glory and majesty. He was with God. He was God, John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No higher being in the universe, obviously, than God. No one more powerful, no greater status, no greater authority. This is what Christ, this was the state that Christ was in before he was incarnate. And yet, Paul says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or some translations put it this way, a thing to use to his own advantage. He did not consider consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be used to be held on to for his own advantage. You know, it's, it's one thing to be in a state of humility due to circumstances outside of your control. It's one thing to be humbled. Imagine um, a CEO, a, a powerful CEO. She's at the top of the corporate ladder. She's in a position of great prominence and authority and status and responsibility. But, but she has a tragic accident, a car accident, and now she's, she can't be in that position anymore. She, she, she can't do it because of her mental capacity. It's been diminished. Her physical capacity has been diminished. And she's in a state of humility such that instead of caring for others and being responsible for others, now people have to take care of her. She's been humbled. But, and she's lost her status. But, She did it involuntarily. It happened to her. So it's one thing to be humbled. It's another thing to humble yourself. To voluntarily, to willingly move from a place of greatness to one of great humility. And that's what Paul is saying. Christ did. We cannot imagine this side of heaven what Christ left behind when he said, yes, I will descend. I will humble myself in order to save them. So, Paul talks about the greatness of Christ before he humbled himself. To give us this, this perspective so that we can be in awe of what Christ did for us. And then... He describes how Christ humbled himself, how he humbled himself, the the, the elements there of this humility. He says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. This doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of his divine nature. Paul would not say that. Some people have interpreted it that way. He emptied himself of his divine nature or gave up some of his divine nature. But Paul in Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwelled bodily. It wasn't, there wasn't a reduction. He doesn't say it was reduced or it completely vanished. But he says, no, 
in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity, the divine nature, dwelled bodily in him. That's Colossians 2.9. So he's not going to contradict in Philippians 2 what he's written in Colossians 2. He emptied himself. It's not that by becoming man, Christ became less than God. But by becoming man, he limited something of his divine privilege and power. In order to accomplish salvation. Theologian Millard Erickson, I think, has a helpful analogy. He says, imagine a world-class runner who decides to run a race, but he runs a three-legged race. He binds himself to another runner. And so here's a guy who, who has set world records when it comes to running, but he's voluntarily limited himself. He still has the potential to break records. But he's held back. He's voluntarily limited himself by this circumstance of being bound together to another person. And in a similar way, when Christ became man, it's not that he became less than God, but he willingly limited himself, something of his privilege and his divine power, something of it, to some degree, he willingly entered into that state in order to save us. Still fully divine, but out of love. He took on the form of a servant, Paul says. And that could be translated a slave. Christ, who dwelled in glory, gave up something of his divine right to take the form of a slave. Now, this week, on Monday, Thursday, we will remember one of Christ's slave acts. Because on that night that we will recall and celebrate and even reenact in some way, we remember that Christ washed the feet of his disciples. That was slave work in the first century. I mean, no one of nobility did that. To wash the dirty, stinky feet of another person, that was slave work. And you remember what Christ said after he got up from doing that? He looked at his disciples and he said, I've done this as an example for you. You, you ought to do this. This is the mindset that you ought to have with one another. And so, Christ humbled himself by emptying himself not grasping at privilege, power, becoming the form of a slave. Here's another element of Jesus' humiliation. He was born in the likeness of man. The world was made through him, the Bible says, but he was born into this world as a gurgling, cooing, crying baby in a stable placed in a feeding trough. The Lord of glory came to us this way. That is shocking. That offends reason. Some people just reject Christianity because they say that's impossible for the infinite to become finite like that. It's contrary to reason. I can't grasp it. Yes, it's 
offends reason. It is supernatural, but it is the supernatural miracle that's at the very heart of our faith. This descent into lowliness and humility in order to save us. In Christ, God became man. Then Paul writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This was Jesus's mission as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was headed to the cross. And he became man, took upon human nature so that he could go to the cross and die. Divine nature can't die. He became man, he became human, to die for humanity in our place. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, Paul says. Now, let's just take a moment, and we're going to reflect on this throughout Holy Week, of the humility of the cross of Christ. Because we are at such distance from it, here in our time and place. The cross has become a symbol of, uh, in some ways, of beauty. I mean, I have this really pretty cross, this gold cross. But, of course, in the first century, the cross was anything but beautiful. It's beautiful to us now because of what it means, what Christ did for us. But that was the place of ultimate shame and torture. In the first century. It was the most degrading and shameful way to die. Reserved for political troublemakers and slaves. Think for a moment about the physical degradation and pain of the cross. That Christ was scourged. Was beaten. Scourged with a leather strap that probably contained shards of metal. Nailed to a cross of wood, exposed for all to see. It was a way of Rome saying to people, if you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to you. Think of the spiritual horror Christ faced when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured mocking and insults all the way through his passion. We saw it in our gospel reading today. If you're the Christ, why don't you save us? Save yourself. He endured hours of excruciating pain until he finally gave up his spirit. Twas there the Lord of glory vilely was rejected. Bach wrote in the Passion of St. Matthew. Was there the Lord of glory was vilely rejected. Now, let's remember why Paul is recounting this story. Why he's rehearsing this. Why he is recalling this, this hymn. It's because there were attitudes in that body, in that church, that we all wrestle with. Pride. Selfish ambition. Vain conceit that was leading to rivalry and division. In fact, at the end of this letter, Paul addresses two women that were very prominent in this church that were fighting with each other. This is the application here that he's driving towards. These women 
He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sinteke to agree in the Lord. Philippians 4, 2. They, we don't know why they were disagreeing, but there was a division here between these two prominent women. Paul says, they have labored with me in the gospel. And here he is writing this in prison and he's thinking about these two women who labored with him side by side. And now this rift has developed. His heart is breaking. He sees the potential of factions breaking out in this church. I entreat Euodia and Sinteke to agree in the Lord. And it's like he, he's, he's saying, remember what Christ did for you? Remember how Christ humbled himself for you? Won't you humble yourself in this Circumstance, won't you crucify your own ego and pursue reconciliation out of love for Christ and out of love for the church and out of love for one another? Remember the cross. It's a good word for all of us. Whenever we're at odds with anyone in our family, in our workplace, in the church, remember the cross of Christ, His humility, in order to bring about reconciliation. Paul Miller, in his book called The J-Curve, and I've drawn a lot of insight for this sermon from his book, The J-Curve, which is a, kind of an extended meditation on this passage. But Paul Miller, in his book, he says, the story of Christ is to be reflected in our story as Christians. That, that his descent into death and humility and then his exaltation through resurrection... That is to be the pattern of the Christian life. Descent, death, humility, exaltation, resurrection. He calls it the J-curve because think about the shape of a J. You know, you start at the top, you descend, go down and rise up. That is the pattern, he says. That's the pattern of Jesus' life. That is to be the pattern of the Christian life. Throughout our lives, Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. To die to ourself, to crucify the sinful and selfish part of us. And we can do this in big ways and in small ways throughout our life. We die to self when we repent of our sin. When we confess our sin before God in an honest way. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and we begin to see it and admit it and grieve over it and mourn it, that's a death to self. Because there's a part of us that wants to rationalize our sin. There's a part of us sometimes that wants to hang on to it. Part of taking up the cross is repentance. A life of repentance. We die to self when we pass on the opportunity to promote ourselves. Or to put someone else down. We die to self when we stop insisting on always having my way. Or the last word in an argument. My mother used to tell me, Ben, you would argue with the Lord himself. You always have to have the last word. 
something I've had to try to crucify. We die to self when we're attentive to another person, especially when we don't really want to interact with another person. One of the things, again, this is kind of a small thing, a small way to die to self. One of the things that I've been trying to do is when I get home, and if I'm in the kitchen, I like to listen to podcasts. I like to kind of escape into listening to what I want to listen to. It's my time. Put in the headphones. Well, there are the kids coming through the kitchen. And, and they want to talk to me about their day. I'm like, I, I'm listening to this. But I've been convicted to stop listening to the podcast in the kitchen so that I can be attentive to my children. There's something in me that doesn't want to do that. But then there's something that's very life-giving about it. When I die to myself and enter into the world of another person, even my children. Just a, just a little thing. I'm trying to grow in this. How might Christ be calling you this season to follow him on the way of the cross? It's not that our humility saves us. Jesus' humility saves us. Jesus' suffering saves us. But whatever humility we have is an outworking of the salvation that God has wrought in us through the work of Christ. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. It's an outworking of the salvation. We, we, we don't aim for humility. We don't think to her, I'm going to be the most humble person. I'm going to be proud about my humility. No. We don't aim for humility. We aim to be like Christ. To know Him more. So that his story shapes our story. I'll end with this. There's a lady in our church, and I ask her permission to share this. A lady in our church who, she's been the caretaker for her elderly father, 24-7 practically, with her dad. Who has been suffering from a kidney disease, I believe it is. And he just passed away recently. She slept next to him every night because when he wakes up, he's disorientated. He has this delirium because of the disease. And we'd wake, he'd wake up disorientated and terrified. So she, she sacrificed sleep to sleep next to her father month after month. She sacrificed being with friends. She sacrificed being here. She's been dying to herself through this. And in talking to her, a couple of conversations I've had throughout this on the phone, she's not bitter about it. I mean, that, that's the thing. When you're going through a trial, you can, you can become bitter about it, about your circumstance. She's not been bitter about it. She recognizes it's a trial, it's a difficulty. But she says, you know what, I, I'm able to honor my father in doing this. We weren't always that close. But I'm able to honor my father through this. I'm getting to know him in ways I haven't gotten to know him. She called me about six months ago, maybe. And she said, and she was elated. Her father had never professed faith in Christ. But she said, Ben, 
My dad just told me I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin. Do we think that possibly the reason why or that God used her sacrificial love, her descent into humility, her dying to herself to show the love of Christ that brought him to a place where he could finally say, I'm going to trust in Jesus to forgive me. She died to herself, but in the midst of that kind of dying, she witnessed a kind of resurrection. She witnessed new life. In our divided world, in a world that's turning away from Christ, I believe this is how God's kingdom is going to grow. By humility and sacrificial love. Towards one another in the body of Christ, towards friends, towards family. A humility that reflects the mindset of our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to grow in having your mind, the mind of Christ, that led you to a place of great humility, leaving behind a place of great privilege and honor out of love. Help us today, by your Holy Spirit, to discern how you might be calling us to grow in this. For the good of others, for our own good, and for your glory. Amen.